used to really pride myself in my optimism. I thought it was like, oh, this is a good thing. And the people around me often patted me on the back and being like, oh, you're so optimistic. Um, first year of residency really kicked me in the butt. And that's where I realized, hey, my, my optimism can really have some negative consequences, you know? It's hard to be motivated. Um, I'm not. <laughs> um, yeah, just to be honest, uh, I'm not motivated. I'm more disciplined than I'm more motivated. Uh, I was well indoctrinated into the belief systems that are supposed to be surrounding what it is that the United States of America is supposed to be. And I'm suffering greatly right now. I'm about to cry talking about it, that my government has so resolutely betrayed us after we have been good citizens. We live in this democracy that we call America. We are supposed to accept political dissent. Whatever form that's in the spectrum, I don't tell people how to protest. I don't even like distinguishing peaceful protests, whatever. When people are exercising their constitutional rights, the government should rejoice within that and say, we welcome that. Instead of saying, no, you did something wrong, I'm gonna charge you with something where you can go to jail for 35 years. You know, Charlie is a friend, and Charlie is in jail for putting up posters. Protest is patriotic. We are being good citizens by caring about stopping the militarization of the police. It just baffles me. I'm not crying, I just got bad contacts, but I do get pretty <laughs> fired up about this. So optimism isn't working, but you know, neither is straight cynicism. Yeah, you have me thinking, like, how am I? Because if you just go all the way in the other direction, like you're gonna... That's delusional. It, well, it's, it's not delusional, I would say it's very realistic, but it's also just not practical in the line of work that you're in. Yeah. And it's not gonna keep you going. When, when I have a patient who is going through a lot and I'm like, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. And then afterwards, my team was like, what's the end goal? They are suffering. Trying to push forth is going to prolong their suffering. And that's when I really took a step back and was like, my optimism hurt me and it had the potential to hurt someone else. The question about optimism and disillusionment, it's like, what replaces optimism? Like, it's not everything's horrible, I'm gonna be cynical, I'm not gonna try. What's the balance between those things? You know, that is a hard question. What is my outlook and is it appropriate? Do I need to balance it with something else? So I spoke to four more very talented, very creative, very driven people. And this time I asked them about thinking outside the box and trying to solve problems creatively. We did talk about that. Some neat stories are coming later, but we also talked a lot about optimism and what inspires and also disillusions them often at the same time. Hi, I'm Paul Wynn. Hi. I'm Paul Wynn. <laughs> Say it like two more times. <laughs> what you care about, what things you're thinking about, mm. maybe what you do. I'm a resident at UCSF. I'm in medicine um, because I wanted to work in queer health and I became a photographer during medical school. Uh, my name is Priscilla Smith. I care about people. I love art, but I love artists more. I use my personal artist studio as a producer and presenter for No Tomorrow. It is a community space 
without having started out with the purpose of being an artist development space, that's one of the things that we have become. A lot of young producers and presenters and musicians have had their first experiences doing public work here. I do a lot of booking of touring shows, a lot of performance art, a lot of dance, a lot of noise. Every Thursday night at 7.30, we have an open jam. It's open to the public and free of charge, and we would love for you to come play with us. My name is Tioki Plaza, and I care about creativity, self-expression, mental health, culture, and people. Christopher Bruce, I'm the Policy and Advocacy Director for the ACLU of Georgia. So I'm very passionate about making sure that your constitutional rights are being protected, especially in the realms of privacy, women's rights, racial justice, criminal legal reform, LGBTQ+. It runs the gamut. Just to put it in context, I have a lot of job security because we have a lot of problems in Georgia. I pick these people to talk to because they're not just frustrated. They're channeling the disillusionment into alternate solutions. As you'll hear, they have some very real, hard-won, experiential lack of faith in large system solutions like government and legislature. I promise we are building to a better note here, but there's a very applicable concept from Rebecca Solnit's book, Hope in the Dark, that I'll drop in as a lens to hear the next few minutes with anyway. She says, some plants die from the center and grow outward. The official United States seems like the rotten center of a flourishing world, for elsewhere, particularly around the edges, and even in the margins of this country, beautiful insurrections are flowering. American electoral politics is not the most hopeful direction to look in, and yet the very disastrousness seems sometimes to offer possibility. In other words, seeing your system fail you can be the push you need to take other approaches. And in that way, seeing optimism fail can inspire hope. Um, I care deeply about self-determination. We're born out of revolt. Um, I know it was a flawed beginning as well as everybody does. But, you know, somebody from city council should have stood up after seven and a half hours of people making very articulate, real arguments and not repeating each other. Here Priscilla's talking about the sheer number of Atlanta citizens that showed up to give public comment against Cop City in May and June. We're talking over 90% opposition, hundreds of signups each time, meetings stretching between 7 and 14 hours each, prior to the council's decision to approve funding anyway. I won't get super into that here, but in short, Cop City is a proposed police training center in the Wilani Forest of Atlanta that has got a lot of community pushback. Somebody should have thanked us. Somebody should have said, this is what we need. How can we harness this energy for the city that we need to have? 
yeah. let's engage you. Yeah. But nobody did that. And so I'm very disenchanted with the political system. I ran for public office. <laughs> I ran for the State House of Representatives. I knew I was fighting a losing battle. I live in a very red district. But I did it anyway. And, and I, in a lot of my life, have been able to look to the judiciary to shore up the underpinnings of what it is that's supposed to be an egalitarian society capable of adjusting and recognizing human progress so that the former rules are no longer applicable. Working through the system. Yeah, we'll work through the system. Okay, I'll get in the system. I'll get in the system and try to make it work from there, but system's broken. I gave money to the current mayor's campaign. He was the most progressive person on the city council. And I feel completely betrayed. I'm not alone in that feeling and I'm very sorry. I always tell people, legislators, they say that they're supposed to represent their district. That's their number one thing. Their number one thing is getting reelected. People who want power, people who are in power like to stay in power. I was at the forest grave. Again, in Atlanta, Cop City, the music festival where 35 people were arrested in March. And it was a lovely thing, you know, campfires and bands and dancing and people sitting on blankets and having a good time using a public park as a public park. There was a bouncy house. There were families there. It was a celebratory time, music on stages. Suddenly there are cops way down the hill and we see people getting zip ties on their wrists and the police are walking up the hill towards where everybody's dancing, where the music is and the bouncy house and all of that. Clearly agitated and armed. The people I was with got scared. The crowd that just wanted to get out of Dodge before anything untoward happened didn't know what to do. There were three or four police walking together. I said, nobody's telling us what to do. I said, if you leave, you won't be in any trouble. And I say, okay, you need to talk to us. I don't remember if I asked them if they felt threatened, but it was clear they felt threatened by us and mm -hmm. words were exchanged and the policeman said, yeah, there are 44 of us and 600 of you. Clearly is scared or scareder of me than I am of him. And I'm like, yeah, 600 of us people dancing at a party. It taught me so much right in that moment. What propagandizing are the police being subjected to to make them be so afraid of us? We can't be protected by people who are afraid of us. We know what works. We just don't put forth the best thing for our people. The world that pays attention knows that our carceral system and police are not solving the problem. When I first accepted this job, people were like, so what's your goals? What is the one thing that you want to make sure you do or anything else? I told them two things. I said, I want to make sure that while I have this job, Roe v. Wade does not get overturned and Georgia does not implement slavery again. One of those things that happened, <laughs> people laughed at me at first, they were like, oh, slavery never come out. I was like, look, you never know. Roe v. Wade was one of those landmark cases where you being a human being actually have rights that the government should not infringe upon. If that group, if people who can get pregnant are being attacked, after that, everything gets rolled back. You should always check your government at every stance. Otherwise, people will run with it. And again, that is eroding your constitutional rights. Okay, so here's me trying to talk about shifting perspective. 
you could look at it that way where you're like, I'm every step of the way I'm checking government when they do something wrong. Or do you see it as chipping away at something more positive? You know, like how do you navigate? I think I'm catching up on your question. I'll start off by saying most, not just Americans, but people agree on the same thing. You can see those polls, like 60 or 80% of Americans believe in this, Yeah. right? Our country is not as divided as people like to put out. Unfortunately, I think the media just really picks on what we're divided upon. They always like, we want two sides to talk about an issue that does not have the same impact of something that we could agree upon. Instead of always being on the defense, I'm trying to move society forward and backwards. We can all agree our infrastructure has issues. Where do we first put our priorities and resources on that? We can talk about that. Everyone wants their children to be educated. Conversations I had about the CRT bills that were being passed. Oh, well, my kids feel bad because they're white now. I was like, if any teacher is telling students that they're bad because they're white, they should be fired immediately. Well, teacher, right? Right. I don't think that's a controversial issue. Banning books? This is literally America. Bill of Rights, your first amendment is free speech you want an educated population. Otherwise, they'll fall for anything. And I really do believe that if you come from a system of understanding, we can get into the system of differences in a much more positive manner, optimistic manner. But yeah, there's, I have often found myself being in a state of despair. You solve one problem or defend it, and another one pops up or five other pops up. Chris did talk about zooming out, though, as a mechanism, so like big picture lenses. Uh, what puts things in context for me is one, I'm not having dogs sick on me, right? I've had death threats before, but I know people who came before me had a lot worse, mm. right? I don't fear being hanged or lynched. I have, but not often. All the time. Yes. <laughs> like these people were under constant threats just to have the right to vote or just to be able to visit grocery stores, just being treated like a human. I graduated with a JD. I live a, I'm gonna say privileged life, but I live a comfortable life where I'm not in fear of constant attacks, not only by citizens, but by the state. Maybe not be constant, it's still there. But yeah, these problems are gonna keep coming, if not avalanche into something more. The only thing that I really fear, and this is what I tell people all the time, problems can be solved, and even if you lose on something, you live to fight another day. Now, when that sun does not come up, then we have a problem. All these other events, lives may be on the line and lost, but we can fight another day for it. If there's a meteor coming to this earth, that's a different story. That was probably that's a pretty weird high to, bar. <laughs> but you know what? Dealing with this type of work is it, you have to put it in perspective yeah. to that point. So yeah, people. I remember when when I was Stacey Abrams' political director of Atlanta, the day after she lost. I was back at my old job, at this job, at 7 a.m. And people were asking us, like, you were just out till 3 o'clock. You had done months of 23, 24 hours worth of work. And you're back at this office after you lost. And I said, I didn't lose. Losing is when you give up. Now it's time to fight on another front. So let's get to work. And I came back, started working the next day. Haven't stopped. He does take care of himself, though. I exercise daily. I would love to go hiking or camping or something like that. Like you gotta have your escape. Therapy also has been very helpful for me. And I like to watch Netflix or anything else in there. Just, I can binge watch all the time. 
I'm at war, I'm at war, but I'm cozy. Sing a bridge, burn it down, this is empty. Feel the noise, kill the noise. It's in disguise. Of all these different approaches, I think the most tangible workaround seems to be creativity. What each of these people demonstrated is a desire to pursue something different, often because their lack of optimism and whatever currently exists pushed them to use outside-of-the-box meetings. Working within constraints, yeah, that's my life. That's the story of my life. I have to find ways to express my creativity in the way that I see it in my head while working with what I have. So of course I don't have everything. I don't have the top equipment. I don't have the best skills to pull off the best ideas that I have. However, I do have the creativity and I do have the lack of resources to make that unique. I know it's kind of confusing, but sometimes the lack of resources puts your ideas in a different light, in a different way that you wouldn't see it if you did have those resources. There are things still ethical I've done that people would probably laugh at. Sitting in restroom stalls to overhear conversations, tracking people down at certain restaurants to get juice and stuff. The results justify the means. Well, we yeah. can get into it. That's the, well, some of that stuff is like, <laughs> I don't need people right. to know, right? <laughs> but I love lobbying. I know lobbying, just like law, I'm a lawyer as well. It has a bad connotation to it. But when it comes down to it, I'm lobbying on behalf of the people of Georgia. It's like guerrilla warfare. You don't have the same amount of army, resources, money, all the things that everybody else has, so you have to be very creative. Is it like personal connection, where you're like, I'm gonna seek out this person to talk to them, look them in the eyes, you know, tell them a story, whatever, or is it more? So I'm glad you actually brought that up. Lobbying to me is just influencing someone to get to a certain result, which is different than public policy, where you're trying to put forth the best policy possible. That doesn't mean that it's going to get picked up. One of the best examples I can give you is there was a bill at the legislature. If you have unauthorized access to an electronic medium, you could be charged with a felony in the state. If that bill had passed the way it was written, if you signed on to somebody's Wi-Fi and didn't get their permission, you could be arrested for a felony. Crazy, bonkers, right? Horrible bill. So I started putting forth different policy proposals and amendments to the bill. There were other lobbyists that looked over my proposals and they said, wow, these are really good, but we're not gonna use them because we don't need them. We have the votes. Mm. You can have the best ideas with the best results, but that doesn't mean that people are gonna vote for it. Lobbying wins the day, not policy. And that's why we need more people becoming lobbyists. Georgia has over a $60 billion budget but less than 1% of that budget, contracts go to African-Americans or minorities. That's a huge discrepancy. It's because we don't have lobbyists asking or lobbying for these contracts. During medical school, I was in Zambia doing HIV research and I joined a band. And the guys in the band started introducing me to their friends and they saw this camera around my neck. And long story short, I started taking pictures with them. A lot of the people I met don't have portraits of loved ones. And I started taking family portraits and attending like religious gatherings. And they started taking me to family dinners and sporting events. And then word traveled and I started traveling to other villages to do that exact same thing. And then every week, because I would be there doing HIV research, 
I would get all of the portraits printed and brought back to that village because like instead of instead of taking photos I wanted to give photos that was sort of my internal motto um, and through that I got in contact with this underground community of queer people in Zambia where it's illegal to be queer as they told me and so I felt like people need to know this but it's also like I'm an outsider um, and it's not really my story to tell mm. and so we collaborated and made this portrait series where no one who was queer was photographed but if you take a step back you can take notes of major colors in each portrait and it creates the rainbow and it represents the invisibility of the queer community in Zambia. That reminds me of what we did in the videos with artworks. Yeah. We had to cut off everyone's heads because we couldn't Yeah. We couldn't use their identity. Um, right. But we still wanted the stories to be heard. Right. We still wanted their voices to be heard. I mean, it was very soon after that. And so mm. artworks was very much in my head still. But yeah, it, it became a theme of how do you represent people who can't be seen? I, I kind of make a joke because now I'm in anesthesia behind a drape, the man behind the curtains, literally. <laughs> and I realize that's sort of the the space I, I find the most magical. <laughs> yeah, same. Artworks was a project Paul and I did in 2016 at Lost and Found Youth Shelter in Atlanta. I wanted to bring a community of artists into a youth homeless shelter. I wanted to share stories of strength and dignity rather than distress and trauma, which are very, very present in our important stories to tell. But I think it paints at times an unhelpful picture for people who are unfamiliar with those social contexts. Yeah, so senior year of college, I made a whole group of friends who are all artists. We went to a homeless shelter in Atlanta, Georgia. We created a multimedia storytelling of a story of strength. I come from a family of Catholic Vietnamese refugees in a fairly conservative environment. And being gay in that community can be very difficult. And I had helped a lot of people come out before I did, but nothing really prepares you for what happens. Um, when I came out, I experienced pretty significant housing instability and couch surfed with friends. I lived at my professor's house for a bit and I was looking at a shelter where I met some pretty incredible people, people who have so much hope. They want to be musicians and lawyers and doctors. And it was exciting, but also really frustrating because I was one of those people um, who have so much hope and so much belief in how I want to shape the world I want to live in. And so making artworks was my first step towards that. When I realized like, hey, I, I do have some skills which can change my environment. I have a population of people who I'm a part of and who I want to help. And ultimately that's what led me to medicine. And now as a resident, I'm using photography as a way to show that people can be in need, but not inhumanely desperate. You know, like you can need something and still have dignity. Um, working in the field of medicine grants access to a lot of different spaces because I can go to a place be like, hey, I'm a doctor and I can help you. Show me how. And then while I'm there, 
provide an ancillary service, which the big funding bodies of the world may not view as important, but I do. Stuff like family portraits. It's stuff like bands. When I look towards the future, I see myself working in global health. And it's because of those musicians, I, I want to go back to communities like that. And so it's because of music, it's because of photography that has brought medicine back. Um, when you are looking for funds, a lot of what they ask are results. Sometimes those results are publications. Sometimes they're like measurable health outcomes. My results can and will be that, but taking portraits will add something that other projects won't. Like before and after or in this moment where they're at, or mm -hmm. I'm approaching you as a doctor, as a human, and I this is my way of recognizing your humanity, or like what direction are you coming at it from? The before and after ones, that's kind of a cool, I, I'm surprised you brought that up because that was literally the first portrait pair of my gallery. And it was a portrait of a young girl carrying an infant and she's very stoic. And then I was like, is that how you want to present to the world? She like nods. Um, and then I start speaking Tonga and she bursts out laughing and I take her portrait and that is my favorite before and after you know <laughs> like this is how someone wants to present and this is how someone is mm. I want to use my photography in medicine because I really believe it changes the way people see themselves they can look at a portrait and be like wow that's me you know and also the act of taking a portrait is grounds for like really honest communication and it centers a relationship first, right? Like you're... It is a relationship. Yeah, it puts the subject in a position of power. Right. Especially if I'm there in a medical context where they might be ill and particularly vulnerable and they can do whatever they want with it as long as they know it's an option for them. Now the curtain's drawn away There's a light pulling me to a new at this point, it's probably not a surprise, but we're about to end back at making joy now territory, which in some ways is an answer to the optimism question too, but I think is best demonstrated by Priscilla's story about her community arts center. I think No Tomorrow is a space of hope. Ironically, because of the name too, right? <laughs> right! <laughs> um, yeah, I want, I want you to articulate the place that you see that it holds in the community. Uh, 2020, as a caregiver for dear friend's mother who was bedridden. Spent a lot of hours taking care of her, a lot of them sleeping in the easy chair next to her. And then um, in October, she died. Got everything taken care of that night. I went home and my housemate, who was my best friend from college, had been living with me for 10 years. He had really bad COPD, and he was on the floor. He'd passed out from weakness. He had something wrong with him. I got him onto the breathing apparatus, called 911. He said, you didn't need to call 911, I'll be okay. He died the next day. So I had two deaths, no job, my daughter's grown, no responsibility to anybody anymore, had a little bit of money. This space where we're sitting now was empty. And my friend, Chris Pilcher, was originally hired to be the creative director for Underground Atlanta. He convinced the owner to give spaces to artists to start activity. So 
we knew going in that we were gentrifying ourselves out of space. I just, you know, buried this, buried that, buried my father in 2016. So I put no tomorrow using sticky notes on the front of the lectern. Because they're temporary? The because they're notes? temporary. Sticky notes are temporary. What that then challenges us to do is to burn it down like there's no tomorrow in terms of the courage of the work that we make. A lot of the people that do work here are young or inexperienced. Their craft may be wanting further development. Our concepts may need further examination, deepening, but I don't want you to do the things that are risky, you know, so you're gonna fall because you try a step that's too hard. Good. Be naked. Good. I don't want you to come in here and make easy choices. You know, I've, I've got imposter syndrome like everybody else. I'm, I'm scared. I don't have what it takes or I've done something wrong. But I'm 66. I don't want to put off my enjoyment of what I have left of this life because I'm worried about leaving a legacy of any kind. I don't have time to mess around anymore. Fear is just something that's just holding us back from our true potential. And I believe that if you're scared of it, that's even more the reason to actually do it and go for it. So whatever that I'm scared of, I guess like, you know, being out there in the public, putting my stuff out online for judgment, you know, if, if I'm scared to do it, then I push myself to do it even more. And when I catch myself feeling disappointed, you know, I take that as a learning experience. No, not to approach it that way anymore. Put that in the notes and continue moving on. When a situation that you had hoped so strongly for does not manifest, you sit with those feelings of disappointment and sadness and know that there will be another time when you can apply that same optimism and it will work. To get to a justifiable end, it might take years. A lot of times you don't get immediate relief. We owe it to ourselves to enjoy the life that we are gifted with having. How can we achieve a goal together as a county, as a town, in our hub, in our bubble? How can we stay here in this city and do everything that we need to do? What can we do as a group? We don't have to leave. We don't have to go to New York. Let's stay in our suburbs, let's stay in our ghettos, let's stay in our little towns and create what we need to create. And yeah, of course, we need to eat, but if becoming rich is the main goal, we're bound to fail. We have to find it in our hearts to do it to help somebody, to do it to benefit society. Loving people, having compassion and generosity for other people, smelling flowers, being defiant if that's your inclination. Just getting up every day and pushing towards that vision. Comfort, peace, relaxation, step by step, brick by brick, until that vision comes to life. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. Oh, 
Don't you know that this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. Oh, I said the world didn't give it. The world can't take it away. Oh, this strength that I have, this strength that I have. This strength that I have. Oh, yeah, now. The world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it to me. This strength that I have. Oh, yeah. The world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it to me. Resistance Revival Chorus believes in the words written by the poet Toy Derricotte when she wrote, joy is an act of resistance. We believe in the words of Mr. Harry Belafonte, who said, when the movement is strong, the music is strong. We sing to revive the hearts of those who fight for social justice, and we sing together for freedom. Thanks to Paul, Tioki, Chris, and Priscilla for the conversations. Double thanks to Tioki for lending me his music too. He was the first and third song. The second one was from Heather Maloney and Darling Side. The fourth from Mina Soro. That interlude was from Noah S. And this one is from Resistance Revival Chorus. I might have even compiled a playlist of the songs I feature in this podcast. The ones on Spotify, at least, if you feel compelled to go back to these generous and incredible artists' work. It's linked in the description or just called Music from Activism if you want to search it.